0: Listen now to the Word of God. 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God to obey his commands. His commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify the truth, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in the Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray, and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Let me pray that God would apply his word to us this morning. Father, we thank you for your promises in Scripture that your word accomplishes the purposes for which you have sent. And so, Lord, we, I pray that this morning we would hear your word as it is, your testimony to us, an authoritative word that comes from you. Lord, let us know this by the power of your Spirit at work, Lord, convict us of our sin. Help us to live lives of gospel obedience. Responding in obedience because of the love you have shown to us. Father, for those that listen today that the doubt whether your testimony could be true, with that doubt whether or not you even exist, Lord, I pray that, that they would hear truth this morning. Having heard it read in your word, having sung these gospel truths, having read it in our worship service, that now hearing the word preached, you would bring transformation. For those who are here without faith in jesus give them today faith to believe to trust in him lord let us live with confidence in your love we come praying in Jesus' name amen sheriff patrick sullivan was considered a hero in his county in colorado when two of his deputies several decades ago in the midst of the sheriff's career when two of his deputies were trapped Inside a home where a, where a hostage had been wounded and a man was holding his deputies with a machine gun, what Sheriff Sullivan did was take a Jeep, drive it through the backyard, through fences to rescue his deputies and the hostage. And so he was highly respected, but a few years ago, the now retired sheriff was arrested on drug charges. Sheriff Patrick Sullivan was held in the county jail, the Patrick J. Sullivan Jr. County Jail. The facility had been named in his honor at his retirement, and now in retirement, he is held a guilty man Later convicted, sentenced to serve time for his crimes. Now maybe there's a lesson for us to learn about when you should name a building in honor of a living person. Maybe you should wait until that person is dead. The problem is even after they're dead, we sometimes learn of the terrible things they have done. But I think there's a more important spiritual lesson for us here. When has someone done enough to earn such an honor? When have we done enough to know that you've actually made it? To know that you've arrived? Now, hopefully none of you will arrive on the front page of the Denver Post because of your drug convictions, or the national news won't pick up the story because you are being held in the jail named in your own honor. But we all know the struggles to wonder if we've done enough to succeed. To know if we've made it or not. To know if we measure up. Because we get tested all the time. We get measured all the time in the world. Students, school's starting. It won't be long before you will be taking exams and grades will be given back to show how you measure It continues as your supervisors at work provide assessments on your work. An annual report on what you've accomplished is you are measured up against your own sales figures. Are you keeping pace? Have you done enough to succeed? And we're always wondering if we've done enough. As we lay a child down to sleep, as the chores pile up, As the sleepless hours pass us by, we wonder Have I done enough? Am I enough? Now, the Apostle John, writing with pastoral tenderness, knows that you and I struggle, struggle to measure up. He knows that you and I are tempted to to measure our lives based on what we can accomplish. And so he writes to his, his church. We, we, you, you've heard me read it now a couple of times, but look again at verse 13 of chapter 5 of 1 John. He says, I write these things, this, this whole letter, all that we've talked about this summer, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know that you measure up, so that you may know that the eternal life you have is guaranteed and secured. But how do we know? And that's the, the big question we're going to answer this morning. How do we know? We know by faith. And then we're going we're to ask then, what does that knowledge do for us more quickly? So, so first, our big question this morning, how do we know this is true? Well, John, in, in this whole book is, has been setting up the argument, but, but, it's, but it's, it, it's clear here in verses 4 and 5. We know this by faith. By trusting, by believing in Jesus. Look at, look at verse 4, where, where John says, everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. You okay, know, what is the victory? Even our faith. That comma there in, in, in my translation sets the word our faith in apposition. It, it is, what is equivalent to the victory? It's our faith. How have we gained victory? By faith, by faith. Trusting in Jesus, he tells us that he who believes. Verse five, when he asks the question, "Who is it that overcomes the world?" Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And he wants us then in verse thirteen to know this as a settled knowledge. Verse fourteen says that it's a confidence, an assurance that this is true. Now, John will then lay out the, the evidence for this. He says there, there, is, there is a testimony that proves that this is the case. Look, we're going to jump ahead to verses 7 and 8 now. He says there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the, the three are in agreement. All right, now let's take these three in the, in the order of what, which, are, which is most obvious, the easiest to understand the spirit in capital S is the spirit the holy spirit of god god himself testifies to us so that in the end we know in our hearts that the testimony that comes to us from god is true because god tells us so so the the, the first witness is the spirit the second the in the in the order of how easy it is to understand as you read through it is the blood because blood is a common word in our hymns. It's a common word in Christian theology. We're talking about the death of Jesus. That Jesus willingly died on the cross for us. And that, that would make sense in the context here of First John. If you turn back to the very first chapter, first John chapter one, verse seven, we're told that if we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, God's Son, purifies us from all sin. So the blood is the death of Christ, his willing sacrifice. He is, as chapter 2 tells us, he is the atoning sacrifice. Or as we heard it in our our assurance of forgiveness, he's the propitiation. He deals with the wrath of God. He died in our place. Forgiveness is ours through the blood of Jesus. Now the third of these three witnesses, and and the one that is hardest to understand, is the water. Partly because the water is such a common thing in our lives, and it's such a common symbol in the Bible that we have to, we have to try and figure out, what is, what is he talking about? And, and the reality is, I think the first readers of this letter, they weren't confused at all. Because this was their pastor. He had been preaching to them. It's almost as if if you and I had been there for his last sermon series, if we had the, the recordings and we could listen to them, we would realize, oh, that's what he was talking about, water, blood, Spirit. That he's already explained it to them. We are only hearing one side of one, one little piece of this. And so, so water is such a common image. We use it in our worship services in baptism as a picture of the cleansing work of Jesus. Jesus himself will use it as an image of, of eternal life itself, the living water that God gives to us. It's an image that's used throughout the Bible, and so we have to stop and say, well, well what's he talking about? Now, first, we have to remember that there was some conflict in this church. There were false teachers who had been teaching a gospel that was not true at all. And so they're willing to say, according to verse 6, they're willing to say that Jesus came by water only, but not by water and blood. Because that's the argument he's making. He's arguing against this false teaching in verse 6 that Jesus did not come by water only, but by water and blood, which means that it probably doesn't refer to the image of, of natural birth, of being born, and the woman's water breaks, because no one is arguing that point. Even the false teachers agree that Jesus was born. They don't believe he was a, an atoning sacrifice. They don't believe he was God himself. And so so if you go through the Gospel of John, if we if we read through John's other writings, and the Gospel is the most lengthy, um, along with, with his his book at the end of the Bible, then then what commentators point out is that he's likely referring, John is referring to the baptism of Jesus. Then when talking about blood, we understand that's the atoning death of Jesus. And so when he talks about water, we're talking about the life of Jesus. And so, so when in Jesus' life does this language show up in the Gospels? It's at the baptism of Jesus. Or even flowing out of that, the baptism which Jesus performed through his disciples as they baptized people. Now remember, what, what happened to the baptism of Jesus? John, the baptizer, I mean, he's, that's his whole function, that, that he, his name becomes John the Baptist. He's announcing that, that the kingdom of God is here. And then what do people need to do? They need to repent. They need to turn around from their sin and come and confess their sins and be baptized. And so Jesus, at the appointed time, comes to be baptized, not as one who has sinned, but as the perfect Savior in our place. And so when John says the water and the blood and the Spirit, he's saying the life of Jesus testifies to this truth the blood, the death of Jesus testifies to this truth. And now the Holy Spirit actively testifies to this truth. That's the witnesses that we hear. These three testify to the truth of what we hear. But some of you are still probably thinking, "Uh, those witnesses don't really do it for me. Like, why do I, why would I care about these kind of of witnesses, but you see who, who you're ultimately rejecting. You're ultimately rejecting. Verse nine tells us God's testimony, because you're thinking to yourself, uh, I, "You know, I, I just can't believe this. I would need better evidence. I'd need to see it for myself. I would need to, some true, observable evidence. And maybe you're even thinking, I just don't have enough faith to believe.'" And culturally. We live in a day where we're to sort of shrug your shoulders and say, I I just don't know. To be agnostic, to, to be somebody who says, I don't think we can know, that seems like a safe thing to do culturally. Because we fear that the person who says, no, no, I know for sure, we fear that that person will become arrogant. Well, that's if they're trusting themselves. But to say, I don't know, in the face of the testimony of God, John tells us, is absolute foolishness. And he says in verse 9, we accept man's testimony. And think about it, you do it all the time. All the time you are trusting other people's assessments of things. You are putting your faith in what other people have told you. I mean, think about when you drive across a bridge. How many of you, before you drive across the bridge, park your car along the side, get down, do some structural analysis of the bridge after you've gone to school so that you can do the work and you can run all the math and you can, you can run all of the tests. Now, some of you are thinking, well, well, I don't do that, but I, I don't like driving across bridges, so I do, I do make sure that somebody else drives across the bridge first. I want to watch them do it. But all the time, we're trusting the testimony of other people. You, you do it every time you, you enter your credit card information online to, to purchase something you expect that by giving that information, you're trusting someone at your bank to transfer money. You're trusting the, 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 the purchaser to send it to you. You're trusting your mail person, your mail carrier, to deliver it to your house. You're trusting all of these people all of the time. And yet we say, but, but here, when it comes to spiritual things, well, now I just won't trust anyone. But who is the only one that you should be willing to trust in these circumstances? The huge questions of life, the great spiritual questions. You should be trusting God himself, the one who sent his son to die for you, who has proven to you what love looks like. See, John is making the argument, we can know this truth. We know it by faith, and we have evidence to believe that it is true. While, I, while we rightly say that it is faith that, that, that saves, we, we come to salvation by faith, it's, it's not the faith itself that saves us. Faith is just a tool. Because John makes the argument. while he calls the Christians to obedience, he's, he's made the argument throughout the letter, "You don't earn your salvation by being a good person. You don't do enough good things in life so that they put your name out in front of the building to prove what a good person you are. That's not how salvation is, is gained. Salvation is a, is a gift that is received by faith, by trusting in what God has already done for us, by admitting there's nothing good that I can do. See, if we were depending on the strength of our faith, then whenever your faith feels weak, your salvation would be in danger. Whenever your faith feels strong, then you would be trusting not in the object of your faith, you'd be trusting in your self. And that's just replacing faith, making it another work that you can accomplish. But John, the, the, throughout the whole Bible, and, and John in this letter in particular, is making clear to us that we are not saved by how strong our faith is. We are saved by how strong the one in whom we have placed our faith is. So, so what is faith? Let, let's, let's think of, of this example. When, when missionary John Patton, Landed in the New Hebrides. Those are the, the archipelago of islands that we now call Vanuatu. When, when he arrived, he faced an enormous task. The language of, of the, the islanders had never been reduced to writing. And so Patton listened to the islanders speak. He, he, he wrote down the sounds that he heard them speak. He took a notebook with him and he would then begin to learn words. And over time, he, he amassed a, a significant vocabulary so that he can begin to translate part of the New Testament. But Patton discovers that he has no word. There's no word that he has yet heard for belief, for trust, for faith. And he understands that he cannot communicate the gospel message with clarity until he has this word. Because to to receive the gift of eternal life is only received by faith alone. And if he can't communicate that to them, then he won't be able to share the good news. And then one day, he accompanies the islanders hunting. It's a hot day. The journey is long. And a large deer is shot, and they they carry it down the mountain back to their homes. When they arrive, they're exhausted. And one of the men throws himself down, and he says, Oh, it is good to stretch yourself out here. It was a phrase, words that Patton had never heard before, and so he he wrote them down immediately. And then he began to realize this was the phrase that he needed to stretch yourself out here in exhaustion. That's the, the phrase that he needed. And so, so in, the, in the gospel of John, as, as Patton translated, it would be as if this is what it says. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever stretches himself out upon the Savior shall not perish but have eternal life. Or in our chapter, it would be, translating it, who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who stretches himself out on Jesus, the Son of God. Or or I write these things, to you who have stretched out on the name of Jesus, the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. See, in your exhaustion of trying to measure up and knowing that you fail, throw yourself upon Jesus. Stretch yourself out in the exhaustion. Trusting in him. Because faith, yes, involves an intellectual, a cognitive understanding of what we're talking about, but it's more than just knowing it cognitively. It's throwing yourself, stretching yourself out upon Jesus. See, that's how we gain this gospel confidence. John is saying, I write all of this to you, To you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. When you have thrown yourself upon Jesus, then your salvation is secure. Because it's not the strength of your faith. You're exhausted and weak. It's the strength of the Savior. It is what He has already done for you. We throw ourselves upon Him. And so how then does this gospel confidence, this assurance of our salvation... How then should it work itself out in our lives? And we'll, just, we'll spend just a couple of minutes looking at this. But, but look at, at verse 14. In the, in the original language, there is a conjunction, the, the word and, and maybe your translation has it there at the beginning of verse 14, where we're, we're told that you may know that you have eternal life, and this is the confidence we have in approaching God. He, John wants his, 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 he wants them to immediately apply this truth. See, theology, truth, is always meant to be lived out in our lives. It's always meant to be practical. And so when you know this, what should it do? And this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask him anything according to his will, he hears us. As soon as you have confidence, then use that confidence to approach God. Now, you can imagine a a king telling his, his servants, telling his subjects, do not wake me tonight. Unless the kingdom is burning down, don't enter my room. Well, who would be foolish enough then to wake a king in the middle of the night after such warnings had been given? A child. His child. Coming to daddy. There's lightning and thunder, and I'm scared. Daddy, there are monsters under my bed. There aren't, kids, there aren't any monsters under your bed. See, it's the confidence of a child who is secure in his relationship who can come with boldness before God. And John is saying, come and pray. Because when you come, you're coming in the name of Jesus. You're asking according to God's will, and God hears you when you pray. You have a direct and personal access with God. See, the the assurance of our salvation, and this this is an important Presbyterian doctrine. I mean, it's important Christian doctrine, but as Presbyterians, we hold this one tightly This should never lead us to become arrogant and think, look at how we have figured this out. No, what should it do? It should humble us like children to come to God in urgent prayer for those around us. Because that's what what he says in verse 16. "If, If you see your brother sinning, then pray for him. All right, now, we do have to stop and answer the question, what is John talking about when he says there is a sin that leads to spiritual death? That sounds Terrible and frightening. And, and again, I think if you'd heard his most recent sermon series as he traveled through the churches of, of Asia Minor, we wouldn't have as big a question here. Because there's a contrast between sins that do not lead to death and then the sin that leads to death. And so he says, if, you're, if your brother is sinning, your brother in the gospel is sinning, then pray for him. That he can repent, that he can turn from his sin, that he can be forgiven. And what are those sins? The sins which are forgivable, it's all of your sins. If you are a believer, then yes, we're commanded in verse 18 that we should not continue to sin. We shouldn't just sin for the joy of sinning. We should turn away from sin. We should be killing sin in our lives. But we know that sin is still there, and so we come to God, the God who is faithful and just. If we confess our sins, then he will forgive us. That's what John has assured us in this letter. And so, so, so let, let me say it this way. If you are worried about the sin that leads to death, the sin that leads to spiritual death, if you are concerned about it, then you have not committed it. Because it means if you are worried that, that perhaps maybe I've committed this sin, the sin that couldn't be forgiven, if you're worried about that, then your conscience is working. The Spirit of God is convicting you of sin so that you can turn from it and be forgiven. And when you turn and confess, there is a guarantee that your sins will be forgiven. What, what John is saying, remember again the context. There were false teachers in the church that denied the truth of the gospel, that denied Jesus was the Son of God. They had been removed, they had been, been sent out from the church. They are the ones who have committed the sin that leads to death. They have ultimately rejected the truth of the gospel. They have rejected God. And so I don't, want, I don't want to remove the warning so much from you that you just walk out of here and say, so I can sin whatever sins I want. No, J- John is serious that you should stop sinning. Stop continuing in your sin. And, if you, and, and And if you don't feel the burden of this weight, that there is a sin that leads to death, a sin that leads to spiritual punishment, eternal punishment, If you don't feel the weight of that, then you should really receive the warning today that you are in grave danger. But there is forgiveness possible. If you wonder, yes, but pastor, if you knew my sins, then I don't know if this would be forgivable. See, if that's what you're thinking, then your sins can be forgiven in Christ. Think of Christ on the cross with sinners on either side, and to the one who, who repents, who asks for forgiveness, who confesses faith in Jesus, what does he say? He, he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. To a convicted insurrectionist, a murderer, a man who can do nothing to redeem his character, Jesus says there is forgiveness. Your sins will be forgiven if you confess them. But lest we be arrogant and think that we can do whatever we want, There was another sinner crucified with Christ who ultimately rejected him. The sin that leads to spiritual death. A rejection of God's true testimony. A rejection of Jesus as the Christ. And so we come to God in confidence, praying for our brothers and sisters. We come to God in gospel obedience, turning from sin to love one another, to love God, to love the children of God. And then John ends with this almost enigmatic verse at the very end, where he introduces a topic that we haven't really talked about at all. He says in in these very gentle words, coming from a a, a senior saint to his church, using this this tender phrase, "'Dear children, keep yourselves from idols.'" And we can almost read it as if as if it's it, 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 it's 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 the old it's the old apostle writing it down, and then he realizes, oh, that's right. I was going to write about I was going to write about idolatry. I, well, I'll just throw it in as a little P.S., a little postscript here, and and add it. But as if it it's it's not really connected. But don't you see what he's doing? What is idolatry? He's using language from the Old Testament, in which people would carve an image and bow down to a statue or an image of gold or silver or stone as if that was a God. And that, that's common still in many parts of our own community, perhaps from your own childhood upbringing for, or the part of the world in which you grew up, where it is still common. But, but he's not merely talking about physical idols. He's talking about the idols of our hearts, the false substitutes we create. It, it, it's not merely an afterthought. Yes, it's language that's fresh, that's new here in this letter. But it matches what he just told us in verse 20. Look at verse 20. He has set before us the truth of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us. And he says, stop playing with your broken toys. You have the original. Stop chasing after false and cheap substitutes. You have Jesus the Savior. Because in verses 19 and 20, he says, we know that we are children of God. And yes, the whole world is under the control of the evil one, but we have the victory. A victory by faith. And then verse 20, he he exalts Jesus. He says, We know also that the Son of God has come. The Son of God has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. You have the true and the good set before you. And verse 20 continues, And we are in Him who is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. And then hear this sentence. Speaking of Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. He is the one in whom we have put our trust. What is faith but throwing ourselves, stretching out in exhaustion upon Jesus. He is everything we need. When the Eagles won the Super Bowl, they repeated a phrase through their playoff run to try and capture some excitement. It was a a phrase that they spoke to one another and shouted in the locker room, and so it got printed then on T-shirts for you to buy as well. It was meant to capture something of their underdog story, playing with a backup quarterback against the league's best. They were trusting in themselves. They believed they could win, and so this is what they shouted we all we got, we all we need. All right, now the English teachers in the room are, are squirming uncomfortably and thinking, oh, you printed that on T-shirts. We need some commas and we need some better verbs. Now that's a, perhaps a good slogan for a football team, but it's an exhausting way to live life. To be trusting yourself to say, I'm, I'm all I've got, but I'm all I need because there's always another game to be played. You may win the Super Bowl and hold the trophy one year, but you'll be back the next season. You may have have beat all of the forecasts in your company this year, but things are so unpredictable. You may have a child who delights you with such tenderness and sweetness, and you, you fear what next year could bring. It's exhausting to always try and succeed in our own strength. See, but John wants you to have confidence, assurance. You have the victory through faith in Jesus who gained the victory, Jesus who died for you in your place on the cross. We are in him who is true. Even in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true God. Jesus is eternal life. And so the phrase that we live by, he, all we got. He, all we need. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. Lord, in our own hearts, we can run ourselves to exhaustion. Trusting not in you, but trusting in our own goodness. And so, Lord, I pray that as your word has been proclaimed, that even now your spirit would bring conviction of sin to those who sit here trusting in themselves. Lord, that they would confess their sins and turn and find hope in you. Father, for those of us who who call ourselves Christians, who follow after you, Lord, give us now the strength to believe, the strength to obey not to obey so that we can earn favor, but to obey because we are already loved. Lord, let us live with the joy of eternal life, life that is ours right now. Let us live with excitement and confidence in the gospel that Jesus is everything I need. He is sufficient to meet my needs. Lord, for those who come with a burden, wondering if their sins can be forgiven, Lord, show them the extravagant depth of your love. You loved us enough to send Jesus to die in our place. And so, Lord, let us rejoice in hope, in gospel confidence, trusting, throwing ourselves, stretching out upon the name of Jesus. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.